Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And today I'm going to be reading the final selection from Alexandra Kolontai's 1909 essay. Actually, it was a book. The selections that I'm reading are from a longer manuscript called The Social Basis of the Woman Question. This is the fifth excerpt that I'm reading. If you haven't listened to the previous four, I suggest you go back and do so. Where we left off in the last episode was on this discussion of free love and what marriage and heterosexual relationships will look like in the future under socialism. So one thing I need to do before I read this section is discuss the Swedish liberal feminist who eventually becomes a more socialist feminist named Ellen Key, who had some pretty radical ideas about the family and maternity and basically thought that maternity or the right of women to have children was more important than marriage. And so she had some ideas about the socialization of the family, and she was definitely an advocate for things like childcare, but she did think that the family unit, as it existed in the early part of the 20th century, even the late part of the 19th century, was really an essential unit of society. And Alexandra Kolontai did not think that that family unit would survive the transition from capitalism to socialism. She thinks that the monogamous bourgeois family is precisely a result of capitalist economic relations and that the family would look different under socialism. So here she is going to basically be attacking the ideas of Ellen Key as she thinks about what the family of the future under socialism will look like. And I I think this is a really interesting part of the essay because in many ways it presages what she later goes on to write in Make Way for Winged Arrows. So I'm just going to start. Other marriage formulas have been put forward. Several progressive women and social thinkers regard the marriage union only as a method of producing progeny. Marriage in itself, they hold, does not have any special value for woman. Motherhood is her purpose, her sacred aim, her task in life. Thanks to such inspired advocates, such as Ellen Key, the bourgeois ideal that recognizes woman as a female rather than a person has acquired a special halo of progressiveness. Foreign literature has seized upon the slogan put forward by these advanced women with enthusiasm, and even here in Russia in the period before the political storm of 1905, Before social values came in for revision, the question of maternity had attracted the attention of the daily press. The slogan, the right to maternity, cannot help producing lively response in the broadest circles of the female population. Thus, despite the fact that all the suggestions of the feminist in this connection were of the utopian variety, the problem was too important and topical not to attract women. The right to maternity is the kind of question that touches not only women from the bourgeois class, but also, to an even greater extent, proletarian women as well. The right to be a mother, these are golden words that go straight to any woman's heart and force that heart to beat faster. The right to feed one's own child with one's own milk and to attend the first signs of its awakening consciousness. The right to care for its tiny body and shield its tender soul from the thorns and sufferings of the first steps in life. What mother would not support these demands? 
it would seem that we have again stumbled on an issue that could serve as a moment of unity between women of different social layers and would seem that we have found at last the bridge uniting women of the two hostile worlds. Let us look closer to discover what the progressive bourgeois women understand by the right to maternity. Then we can see whether, in fact, proletarian women can agree with the solutions to the problem of maternity envisaged by bourgeois fighters for equal rights. In the eyes of its eager apologists, maternity possesses an almost sacred quality, striving to smash the false prejudices that brand a woman for engaging in a natural activity, the bearing of a child, because the activity has not been sanctified by law, the fighters for the right to maternity have bent the stick in the other direction. For them, maternity has become the aim of a woman's life. Ellen Key's devotion to the obligations of maternity and the family forces her to give an assurance that the isolated family unit will continue to exist even in a society transformed along socialist lines. The only change, as she sees it, will be that all the attendant elements of convenience or of material gain will be excluded from the marriage union, which will be concluded according to mutual inclinations, without rituals or formalities. Love and marriage will be truly synonymous. But the isolated family unit is the result of the modern individualistic world with its rat race, its pressures, its loneliness. The family is a product of the monstrous capitalist system. And yet, Key hopes to bequeath the family to socialist society. Blood and kinship ties at present often serve, it is true, as the only support in life, as the only refuge in times of hardship and misfortune. But will they be morally or socially necessary in the future? Key does not answer this question. She has too loving a regard for the ideal family, this egoistic unit of the middle bourgeoisie to which the devotees of the bourgeois structure of society look with such reverence. But it is not only the talented, though erratic, Ellen Key who loses her way in the social contradictions. There is probably no other question about which socialists themselves are so little in agreement as the question of marriage and the family. Were we to try and organize a survey among socialists, the results would most probably be very curious. Does the family wither away? Or are there grounds for believing that the family disorders of the present are only a transitory crisis? Will the present form of the family be preserved in the future society? Or will it be buried with the modern capitalist system? These are questions which might well receive very different answers. However, with the transfer of the educative functions from the family to society, the last tie holding together the modern isolated family will be loosened. The process of disintegration will proceed at an even faster pace, and the pale silhouettes of future marital relations will begin to emerge. What can we say about these indistinct silhouettes, hidden as they are by present-day influences? Does one have to repeat that the present compulsory form of marriage will be replaced by the free union of loving individuals? 
the ideal of free love drawn by the hungry imagination of women fighting for their emancipation undoubtedly corresponds to some extent to the norm of relationships between the sexes that society will establish. However, the social influences are so complex and their interactions so diverse that it is impossible to foretell what the relationships of the future when the whole system has fundamentally been changed, will be like. But the slowly maturing evolution of relations between the sexes is clear evidence that ritual marriage and the compulsive isolated family are doomed to disappear. So that's the last selection that I'm going to read from the social basis of the woman question, which is a much longer manuscript. And it's very wide-ranging, and Kolontai goes on to try to distinguish the socialists from the feminists and why they can't work together and many of the themes that she will develop later in her work. But here, I really want to focus on this question of the family and especially Kolontai's critique of Ellen Key and this idea that women want to be mothers they or that's what ellen key believed that women had this desire to be mothers and that the kind of current form of marriage and the kind of dependent relationship that women find themselves in on their husbands or the problem of not being able to become a mother if you don't have a husband or the problem of having a child out of wedlock and illegitimacy. These were all the issues that Key was trying to address in changes to the civil code in Sweden where she was based. And she was a very influential feminist in the wider European context and her ideas were certainly very influential. Obviously Kolontai read Key and was very familiar with the larger debate about the role of marriage and motherhood. But what I think is really interesting here is that Kolontai tells us in this part of the essay that socialists are divided. They're not sure about what the proper policy should be towards the family. Will the current form of the family survive capitalism and continue into the future under socialism? Or will family relations look fundamentally different when there's a socialist society? Relevant here are the two early drafts of the Communist Manifesto that are written on his own. Frederick Engels writes two drafts before he collaborates with Marx for the 1848 version. Both of these drafts are written in 1847. And in these drafts, Engels says that children should be collectively raised as soon as they're old enough to leave their mothers. Engels understands on some very fundamental level that the society of the future, a more collective society, a more cooperative society, is going to have to address the problem of the family. Not only women's subordination within bourgeois monogamous marriage, but the idea that the family reproduces a particular kind of individualistic mindset that is incompatible with socialism in the future. And here Kolontai is picking up on this thread, and she later develops it in more detail in Make Way for Winged Arrows, her later essay that I have read previously on this podcast. But here she's saying that there is no consistent socialist policy. There is no consistent socialist theory about the family. Whether or not this particular form of bourgeois monogamous marriage, whether or not the family unit as a, a kind of economic unit in society where workers are reproduced and bred for use in the larger capitalist economy, whether that fundamental social unit is going to somehow remain intact. Now, I think 
even in this early essay in 1909, Kolontai is basically suggesting that she doesn't think it will remain intact. She thinks it's going to be fundamentally transformed. And she also argues here that it should be fundamentally transformed. Now, she's saying at this point in 1909, this is obviously well before the Russian Revolution, she has no idea what the family of the future will actually look like, but she's quite convinced that it will look different and that bequeathing to socialism, to the socialist future, this outdated form of the family, which she believes is a particular construct of capitalism, this construct that perpetuates property by becoming the means through which wealth is transferred intergenerationally, she understands that once there is no private property and there is no wealth and people are living in a society where resources are more broadly shared, that the kind of work that the family does to perpetuate privilege from one generation to the next is not going to be necessary anymore. But the question remains, what will the family of the future look like? she recognizes very clearly that the family is a place where people's misfortunes are soothed, where in a world that is cruel and where people are exploited, that the family is the place that people go for kindness and tenderness, and that it's a very essential institution in a capitalist world because there isn't a collectivity. People don't have broader social friendships or relationships with people in society on a, on a broader level, which is what she's imagining life under socialism will look like. Under capitalism, we're very isolated and lonely. And I mean, this is borne out in 2019. There are consistently surveys being done about how lonely people feel despite things like social media, despite being connected. We are largely suffering from a huge crisis of isolation and loneliness, not only in the United States, but I would say arguably across the quote unquote developed world, the, the global north. And to a certain extent, I, I think that these um, forms of loneliness and isolation are spreading out across the globe. So how is it that we're going to destroy the family or we're going to shift the family in its current form when the family is the place where we go when we're feeling brutalized by the world around us. I mean, all of us know how we much we rely on our parents to help us in when times get tough or vice versa. Many, many, you know, elderly parents are moving in with their adult children if some kind of economic catastrophe happens or some sort of health calamity. Families are the places where we share resources, where we support each other. And so I can totally understand, and I think Kolontai completely understood, that the family is this essential institution in a capitalist society because it's the place where we are cared for and we all need to be cared for. We all need to be felt like we belong and we are loved. But in the future, if we lived in a society where we were cared for more broadly and collectively by the society in which we live, and if we have broader social relations with many more people, we have a lot more friends, we have more colleagues, we have maybe bigger families, we have big, huge kinship networks where we feel supported and validated and loved and cared for by many, many, many other people outside of the nuclear family, is the nuclear family going to survive? Do we want it to? Now, these aren't easy questions to answer, and I don't have the answers to these questions. 
But if you are listening to this podcast with other people that you know, I think this is a fabulous question for discussion. This is something that, you know, a whole working group could be organized around. What is the role of the family and how can we fundamentally transform the family in order to create a more collective society in the future while still preserving the functions of care and tenderness and warmth and you know collective identity it's the only collective identity for many of us is the family it's our brothers and sisters and parents and maybe our cousins and grandparents we have a sense that we belong to this unit and this unit is there to take care of us when things get bad how do we get rid of that and create a society where that family structure isn't necessary because we're living in a society where we're being cared for more broadly by by a collective, by the the broader social collectivization of wealth and and the means of production and so on and so forth, however that looks. And again, I think here you can be a socialist, a communist, an anarchist, a libertarian even, and you're still facing the same fundamental question. What is the relationship between the family and the larger economy? And how can we destroy this family when, in fact, we need that family in order to survive capitalism and the brutalities of capitalism? And yet at the same time, are we actually perpetuating the brutalities of capitalism by holding on to this anachronistic notion of the family? This is a kind of chicken and egg question, and I don't have a really good answer. I have some really strong opinions, and certainly I think Kolontai does too, but I think it's something that maybe we should discuss more broadly. So. Anyway, that's it for this episode. That's it for the social basis of the women question. I'll go on to reading some new essays on my next episode. And until then, this is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Thanks for listening and keep up the good fight. Keep it-